Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexually diverse communities. Coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre studios on Bunurong Country, I'm your host Jacinta Hennicom, joined this week at the studio by Rachel Cook. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for having me back. So tonight on this episode of Well, 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 we will be diving into a new report that has been released from the Australian Research Centre for Sex, Health and Society and LGBTIQ plus Health Australia about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on LGBTIQ plus communities. So stick around and you'll be learning a lot more in the next hour. You're getting well, well, well with the team from Thorn Harbour Health. You're here with Jacinta and Rachel, and we are joined by Dr. Nat Amos from the Australian Research Centre for Sex, Health and Society, otherwise known as Archers. Thank you, Nat, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And you're here to tell us about the Pride and Pandemic Report, which was released earlier this week. What is the report and what is it about? Yeah, so the Pride and Pandemic was a, um, a project that we ran looking at the health and well-being of um, of LGBTQ communities during the pandemic, and it was a it was a collaboration with Arches and LGBTIQ Health Australia. Uh, and so we looked predominantly the focus was on uh, the mental health impacts of the pandemic, but we looked at other the health and well-being outcomes as well, as well as the strategies that were used to kind of mitigate um, those impacts of the pandemic. Uh, and we did this through uh, the use of an online survey and we had an amazing response rate of 3,135 participants. Uh, and this kind of, the survey was used to look at the incidences of these health and wellbeing outcomes, as well as to gain a sort of top level understanding of the strategies that we use. And then we had uh, four focus group discussions as well. So we had 23 participants that I completed the survey and then um, signed up to do focus group discussions too. And this gave us an opportunity for sort of more in-depth um, and, and get more nuanced insights of pandemic experiences. And the report that was released this week just is a comprehensive overview of all of those findings across a range of topics um, from the survey and from focus group. Why is it important to reflect on the experiences of our communities during the COVID pandemic and the continued impacts? So we, just prior to the pandemic, Archers also ran another survey called Private Lives Free, and that looked at, that's the Australia's largest survey of Australian, uh, of, of LGBTQ adults in Australia, um, with more than, I think, 6,800 responses. And from that survey, we found really troubling rates of, of poor health and wellbeing within the community. 
So it was really evident that going into the pandemic, LGBTQ communities already faced challenging circumstances. Uh, and these were just further exacerbated by the pandemic. And they also, our communities also face sort of unique challenges to uh, the broader community as well during the pandemic. So it was really important to understand how LGBTQ communities were impacted, but also how we can protect the community and improve health disparities moving forward with the pandemic and also being prepared for future crises. And there might be global crises like a pandemic or there could be local crises like we see now with the floods and we have this ongoing bushfires um, in Australia. So they might be more localised, but they face the communities in those areas face similar challenges to what we see in the pandemic. And like you said, there's really big themes included in this research project and the main focus is primarily on mental health and well-being. But the study gained new insights into a range of other topics related to this, um, I guess, in, in different subsections. I wanted to ask, what did you find about financial and housing security? So, yeah, we did see um, definitely a lot of participants express concern about their financial and housing security through the pandemic. Um, and we saw higher rates of um, self-reported unemployment in, unemployment in prior to the pandemic than what we saw uh, in that private lives through survey prior to the pandemic. Um, in terms of uh, with, when it came to the focus group discussions, we also participants reported a lot of concern around financial and housing security. Um, young focus group participants, in particular, expressed concerns with. Um, financial their financial situation leading to them having to live in unsupportive or unaffirming households and with family that didn't support their identities um, and there was also concerns as well expressed from from the the participants in focus groups from multicultural backgrounds particularly with regard to um, migrant LGBTQ people and they expressed concern around um, migrant LGBTQ people not being eligible for government provided financial supports and so some spoke of friends that risked having to return to um, to culturally unaccepting environments due to those difficulties in Australia. And what about the experiences of family violence? You know, almost one fifth of participants had experienced violence from an intimate partner during the pandemic, and more than a quarter had experienced violence from a family member. What was it like to find these results and, you know, what can we do with these stark statistics? That's a really, really good question. In terms of finding the results, it was, it's really upsetting to see these results. You know, I've, I've worked across um, our adult data from Private Life Free, our young people data from writing themselves in, and, and now looking at Pride and Pandemic and the family violence data is really upsetting. Um, particularly when I ran the breakdown. So we've looked at, in the report, each chapter provides a sort of breakdown of the different intersections of the population um, with different, for each of their different um, outcomes that we looked at. So with family violence, one of the things, one of the uh, groups that we broke down by was age group and finding that young people, so those aged 18 to 24, the findings say um, that half of them reported violence from a family member during the pandemic which is when I, I remember when I ran those results and just having to take a break for myself, having seen that, because it was just, it's really upsetting. I triple checked that one for myself as well. Um, in terms of what to do with this data, I think LGBTQ communities are often um, overlooked in the family violence sector, as well as in family violence research. 
And as terrible as these findings are, it's really important that we have this data now. And I think this data can be used uh, in a really strong way to support advocacy efforts and calls for improving access to family violence services and prevention efforts. And we need these efforts to be targeted to LGBTQ communities and also providing affirming care um, for LGBTQ people. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're completely right in how how much of an impact this data can have. Like, it's it's quite horrific to see it put into numbers like that, but it really does, um, in a lot of ways, support the, the work that's being done um, in places, especially like LGBTIQ plus Health Australia and the other work that happens at Archers to, you know, go into prevention work for LGBTIQ family violence. So... Um, I think I think a lot of these community organisations as well have been advocating for more support for family violence for LGBTQ people, but we didn't have the numbers to back it up. And sadly, that's what we needed um, to really be able to um, support those advocacy efforts. So, yeah, it is great to yeah. have that as horrible as the findings are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's been discussion about the change in impact of alcohol and other drugs during the COVID pandemic. What did the Pride and Pandemic study find about this for LGBTIQ plus communities? Yeah, so we we asked about um, the different types of drug use as well as alcohol and tobacco use. Um, we found some interesting patterns. So there was decreased use. So, so this is self-reported, so people saying that they... Um, reporting whether they used more or less of a certain substance. Um, so we saw people reported decreased use in um, in drugs that are more typically associated with partying. So I guess that would be expected with decreased social interactions during the pandemic. Um, we also saw increased consumption of alcohol and tobacco um, potentially in, and, and also cannabis as well, potentially in response to the extra stresses that are brought about by the pandemic. Uh, and this was expressed by focus group participants, participants as well, some who mentioned um, drinking alcohol more during the pandemic just to um, as a way of, of managing the stress. Um, it doesn't necessarily imply that this is problematic consumption um, because we don't we we didn't uh, we don't know rates of consumption during the pandemic. Um, we did ask about concern with drug or alcohol use and we did have um, a number of participants who expressed that they were concerned about their own drug or alcohol consumption during the pandemic and concerningly only like a few accessed support services. So I think those those findings really just highlight again um, a need for greater access to LGBTQ affirming drug and alcohol services that just weren't available enough during the pandemic and haven't been prior to the pandemic either. So it just, it really just, the pandemic exacerbated some of these things and really shone a spotlight on on where the shortcomings are. We'll be back in a moment to continue talking with Dr. Nat Amos from the Australian Research Centre for Sex, Health and Society. Sexual health, mental health and the overall well-being of our LGBTIQ communities. You're listening to Well, Well, Well. We are continuing the conversation with Dr. Nat Amos from Archers about the new report, Pride and Pandemic, that has been released earlier this week with findings about the various impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic for LGBTIQ plus communities. 
Now, I wanted to ask, the the main standout of the report was the number of participants who felt that their mental well-being had gotten worse since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Can you explain for us what you found? Yeah, sure. So, interestingly, when we look at, we tried to compare some of our data from Pride and Pandemic to Private Lives 3 um, mental health data. So, that was just prior to the pandemic. Um, and there isn't a there isn't much evidence that's difference in, in mental health. I think it kind of highlights that mental health was already quite terrible in the community leading into the pandemic and it just remained so. But we did have um, many participants that self-reported that they felt their mental well-being had been negatively impacted by the pandemic, as well as those who had um, had a prior mental health diagnosis prior to the pandemic, feeling that that diagnosis that mental health condition had been made worse during the pandemic. Um, we we saw that sort of on some further analysis of the data that the, that mental health outcomes were impacted uh, further by a loss of interactions and support from family and friends. We also heard from focus group participants particularly expressed the dental, detrimental impacts of financial instability, as we spoke about before as well, um, and then being forced to live in households where their identity might not have been affirmed or supported, um, also impacting on mental health as well. Did the study find any indications of how people are engaging or engaged in uh, with health services and support? Yeah, we did ask a bit about health service engagement during the pandemic as well, and we definitely found that people experienced increased barriers to health service engagement. Um Particularly with regard to mental health, we saw that participants uh, found that cost of services was a significant barrier. Focus group participants mentioned a lot that the extra there was extra funding for um, mental health care during the pandemic that they found really helpful and were uh, that that they a lot of them expressed hoped would stay um, beyond the pandemic as well. Um, but we also found that participants found that a lack of availability of their preferred service was a significant barrier to accessing care. Uh, among those who did engage with mental health services, they mostly did so through a mainstream service that was known to be LGBTQ inclusive and very few that accessed an LGBTQ specific service. But I think that this really, again, just reflects the lack of availability of these services rather than a preference. Uh, and focus group participants um, overwhelmingly expressed that they had a preference for LGBTQ-specific services, but were more likely to choose a mainstream service that they knew to be LGBTQ-inclusive because they found that LGBTQ-specific services were just too hard to access during the pandemic. And they also there was an awareness that LGBTQ-specific services have limited places, I guess, and they didn't want to take up... Um, take up room that that someone else might that they felt someone else might need more than them in those services and i think that illustrates a really beautiful care for community that we saw throughout the um throughout the project but it's not really a choice that anyone should have to make uh, and again what we need more of is just more access to and resourcing of lgbtq community controlled mental health care services as well wow that's really incredible findings that you got out of the focus groups to be able to discern that data and, and 
actually hear people explain reasons why they may have accessed a mainstream service that is LGBTQ friendly compared to an LGBTQ specific service. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sitting yeah. here quite shocked by by those findings. It was really, you know, we've we, we've asked about this in the prior surveys as well in Private Life Three, and it's one thing to look at the data and try to understand it. It was really interesting to hear those conversations uh, in the discussion groups as to why they had these preferences. Not so much preferences, but why they chose the service that they chose because um, it's not necessarily a preference. It was more just a necessity. And I wonder too how much of that is, you know, is misconceptions about certain LGBTIQ health services and who they're actually for. And perhaps it's also about looking at, as you were saying, it's really a really beautiful thing, community caring for community by saying, I don't think that I'm eligible, but maybe call the service and see actually if you are eligible, because I think that sometimes we can think that, that um, I don't want to take up someone else's place, but actually maybe you're the exact person who should be accessing that service. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think hopefully in an ideal world, it just, no one should have to think that they're taking a place from someone else. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And something that the report also looked at was the social interactions and the uh, forms of informal support. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Yeah. So uh, in terms of social interactions, I think we saw much of what we would have expected as well for the broader population. So almost all uh, participants experience decreased, in, uh, decreased social interactions and decreased uh, informal support as well. Um, and then we saw a lot of novel ways in which uh, participants kind of compensated for that. Um, so uh, focus group participants as well gave us stories about how they were connecting with friends remotely um, and with family and, and sort of social groups and social gatherings. We also saw quite a bit of remote community connection um, through through the the survey and the focus groups, um, so yeah, definitely definitely a decrease in in those interactions, but um, finding ways around it. The report also discussed other coping strategies, including pet ownership. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, we, we asked a, a number of questions in the survey about what we thought um, might be kind of behaviours and activities during the pandemic that, that people might have engaged in to support their mental health. Um, and one of those was pet ownership, which was a really nice one. Most participants owned at least one pet during the pandemic and almost all of them said that their pet gave them valued companionship during the pandemic um, as an, an owner of a dog and five five chickens and two children during the pandemic I can definitely relate to that I think I had almost two companionship <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think for, um, for myself I I became a, a greyhound owner <laughs> during the pandemic and that um, definitely made a difference <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so and then we also we also asked about some other behaviors as well and we found that being able to maintain pre-pandemic levels of exercise and physical uh, physical activity at time outdoors and uh, time spent on hobbies was really important for mental health. Um, so people who were able to kind of keep up those behaviours as they did prior to the pandemic had better mental health outcomes. And then we also asked uh, the survey participants an open-ended question about other strategies. So it just gave them a 
space for a text response where they could write in anything else that had helped them during the pandemic. And these responses um, frequently included things like building routines to adjust to the pandemic, um, building meditation and mindfulness practices, and also what was commonly mentioned was regular access to mental health care appointments um, and being able to maintain them through the pandemic. Yeah, and obviously with all of this really rich, helpful data, there were recommendations that were made in the report. Can you tell us a bit about what those recommendations are and how they may be actioned? Sure. So there are uh, a total of 13 detailed recommendations in the last chapter of the report, uh, and these speak to the sort of individual and structural concerns um, that were brought about by the pandemic and make suggestions of how we can rectify these. There is there is kind of an overarching theme to these, and I think I've been banging on about that through this interview as well, calling for increased efforts and increased resourcing to make LGBTQ affirming health services more available and accessible. Um, this including mental health services, family violence services, as well as alcohol and other drug services. And we need... We need, we're as well calling for action on this now. We can't wait for another pandemic. You know, we saw LGBT people, LGBTQ people, um, they sort of came into this pandemic in already challenging uh, circumstances. It was made worse by the pandemic. Um, and we can't, yeah, we can't, we can't wait for another crisis. So these apply to kind of general ongoing challenges as well. So a lot of their recommendations apply beyond the pandemic. As, as well as in face of, of potential future crises, whether they're global and, again, whether they are local crises as well, like the bushfires and the floods. Now, how confident do you feel that these recommendations will be actioned and will be taken seriously? I think that I feel fairly confident about it. I think that we see a lot of changes now generally around, LG, uh, around how we talk about LGBTQ healthcare. We're seeing a lot more... Um, of the sort of royal commissions looking into various health topics, naming LGBTQ populations as priority populations. There are some amazing LGBTQ community organisations and advocacy groups who can use this data now from our report to support their advocacy efforts. Um, so I feel, I think we have been yelling for the same thing for a long time, but I think, I, I, I feel fairly positive that we will start to see some real changes. Are there plans to do follow-up studies or to do future studies on this same topic? Um, we have no plans in the works for um, anything like Pride and Pandemic, although it's very similar to the Private Lives 3 um, survey, which we are planning to do. Ideally, regular follow-ups of for the adult population as well as our writing themselves in for um, study, which also ran in 2019 with young people. We are aiming to do follow-ups of both of them um, hopefully more ongoing. It's going to be fascinating as studies come out in the next couple of years uh, or conducted the next couple of years as we you know, all adapt to the new normal to see how whether we do go back to previous levels, pre-pandemic levels or whether we, um, whether we, are, yeah. we, whether we are still changed. Now, where can people go to read the full report? The full report is available on the Archer's website through La Trobe University. You can download a PDF copy of it from there. And then any other, we're working on future outcomes from this, journal articles and publications, which will all be available from the Archer's website as well.
Fantastic. Nat, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the new Pride and Pandemic Report and congratulations on launching such a really meaningful and impactful report with us and our communities. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be able to share these findings. Wonderful. And all of those findings and links to the full report will be in the podcast webpage. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org.
This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.